All right, we're recording and we're back. So first proper remote session, which has taken two hours to set up. I think that's, I, don't, I think it's actually been more than two hours. Yeah, which is pretty good for us. It is good for us, but yeah. I am just gobsmacked every single time that there is just little technological bugs and issues. I'm, I'm surprised, you know, just the fact that my mouse stopped working before. I, I, I can't believe that still happens. I thought we would have worked all this out by now. <laughs> You'd think so, but no. Nah. There's too many interactions with different programs and stuff and the internet and all this. It's uh, too complicated, so something's going to break. But it works pretty well when you think about how actually technically difficult all this stuff is to pull together. Oh, I'm not saying I would have a hope in hell of being able to do any of it. <laughs> But, but you can complain but I can about compl- it. Complain about it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the uh, what's the go today, mate? Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, uh, which is a book by the Pixar founder about how to be creative. Yeah, it's his. Um, it's his, really. It's a kind of split autobiography of himself and the development of Pixar, which is a nice little combination. Both a nice little story and a business book. Yeah. Maybe it's more of a memoir mm. about his time at Pixar. Yeah. But tell us about Ed. So I was going to ask you though, mate, just before we did that, is did you listen to this one or did you read this one? I listened to this, which I think I've said for almost every book we've done, so people probably think I don't read at all. <laughs> uh but I generally do fifty percent audiobooks, fifty percent uh, reading. Yeah. In traditional reading. So. Yeah. As um, I said before, this I've made a rule that, for at least for myself, that any the only books that I will listen to are um, biographies or um, fictional narratives or something with narrative because I just can't consume the more technical stuff. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good idea and I, I think I'll do the same. They're certainly the ones I've most enjoyed on uh, audiobook, things like American Kingpin or Bad Blood or those type of kind of narrative non-fictions because something like this, it is hard to um, kind of remember all the information. Yeah, even though there is a bit of a narrative to it, there's a lot of just solid takeaways um, and particularly mm. if you want to make some notes for later. Um, can be difficult in the audio form. Not impossible, but just more difficult. Yeah, for sure. So Ed, Ed was born in 1945. Um, so he's he's coming of age, <laughs> and he he grew up in Utah. Um, and he was actually in this little close knit Mormon community when he first, um, you know, when he was first growing up, and his upbringing was really shaped um, by his father's upbringing which he had come from um, you know a dirt farmer with 14 other siblings five of which died you know they, they a dirt farmer yes <laughs> what is that I, I had to look this up so um, the way I understand dirt farmer and I I'm sure I'll still be corrected is they are the ones who so a farmer who 
tends the land and looks after his farm all by himself, basically. Right. Okay. Basically, he's okay. he's the man running the business. He's the man doing all the farming. He's the man that's whatever it is. Mm. Um, so, it sounds like you were uh, talking ill of him. Not talking ill. I think it's just. <laughs> it's just the word. I think it's. it's just what it I is. think it's just a. Uh, it, <laughs> It's a tough situation to be in. Yeah. I, I when I first when I first heard it, I thought, "Is this is this a indication that it's a farmer that can't actually grow anything? They're just kind oh, that's, of is he like playing with dirt, pushing dirt around." <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. that's what you and I do, mate. We play with dirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, earthworks. Yeah, earthworks. Civil. That's a civil joke. Um, so anyway, that was a big influence on his his upbringing, and so as a result of his father actually kind of escaping some of that, uh, instilling in his own children this idea of, you know, working for creating whatever it is that you want to create out of your life and, you know, making making an impact that way. Um, and so I think Ed really kind of took that on board, um, which is pretty exciting. And kind of tied in with all of that is – uh, his upbringing was, you know, off the back of World War Two, the Great Depression. So there was this real optimism that had been generated after, you know, the inflection point of all those, you know, um, kind of big negative world events. So everything was kind of looking positive. Yeah, the baby boomers. Yeah, the boomers. And so around similar time, um, there was the big space race that was going on, uh, you know, and this this is this is part of the leading into the Cold War, and so the Soviets launched the uh, Sputnik One, which was the first artificial satellite to to go into orbit, um, and so America's response was to create the Advanced Research Project Agency, APRA, which I think has actually become DARPA now with, you know, just defense in front. And these these are the guys mm-hmm. that have, you know, helped the computer revolution, created the internet or been majorly responsible for the internet, you know, nuclear test detection, rockets, jets, planes, M16s, all that type of stuff. So they've, been, they've had big responsibility and fingers in a lot of pies. Um, and this is really interesting because this kind of ties back in a little bit later on in Ed's life. Um, so he had a real passion for art um, that developed in high he school. Loved Walt, he loved Walt Disney, didn't he? Yeah. He was obsessed by the cartoons. He, he, was, he was like, it sounded as though he was so impressed by what they do, but he thought that he would never be able to do it himself. Mm. which is quite interesting. Um, or at least he thought he didn't have the, you know, the technical and dexterity um, to allow him to um, be a great animator. But he loved the idea. He wasn't a, he wasn't a great artist as such. No, but he, 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 does, he does say that. In, the, in a, like drawing, I mean by that, I guess. Yes, yeah, which is, you know, the, the repetitive drawing of pictures you know, pictures certainly back then to create animations, you know, you're drawing 30 pictures in for every one second of film type thing. I couldn't imagine doing that. Um, certainly haven't got the patience. 
But he said that the act of committing that object to paper was completely engrossing. And so I think that was a real dawning point for him to, you know, to shape where he was going to head later on. Um, So, of course, um, he did have a – he felt he had a much more scientific brain. And so he went and studied physics and computer science um, in 1969. Uh, And he was encouraged to enter into um, uh, computer graphics by Ivan Sutherland. And, and he was the guy that created the very first head-mounted virtual reality. Now, that's pretty interesting, mate, because... Back then. Back then, 1968, the Oculus Rift is... That is not a new concept. There you go. 1968. Just took a long time to get going. Even now, it's not really widely used yet. You, you wouldn't think they'd quite nailed it. No, I've, I've had a play with one. Uh, actually, my first, the first time I ever sat down to um, test one out, and <laughs> of course, the first first thing that happens when they put it on my head, the whole system just drops out, <laughs> and so that wasn't a good start. Um, but eventually, it got going, and it was, you know, there were because it was quite a noisy room. Um, some of the noise cancelling headphones, you know. It wasn't quite cutting everything out, but it was quite a trippy experience. Being mm, f- you wouldn't want to be walking around. No, no, not at all. Oh, got them on. No, it would be well. They, they do have. They do do. Um, you know, like laser tag. Yeah. yeah, there's like a laser tag. At least in Melbourne, where they do like a zombie escape laser tag thing. Oh, that's cool. where that's where cool. you basically got these these goggles on. Yeah. And you're going around, yeah, with everyone else with goggles on, but you're kind of just sitting in your little zone. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> That's the future. We're going to have to give that a test run, right? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, 1968. Although I think it was like wearing a uh, uh, a barbell on your head. Yeah. Um, at the time, so things have changed. They've gotten a bit lighter. Uh. Who else was um, he exposed to at this time? Um, so there's Professor Sutherland and Dave Evans, um, who was the chair of the um, computer science department, allowed their students to work on whatever excited them. So for Ed, um, he he eventually went on to start Pixar. Um, in Ed's class, there was a guy named Jim Clark. He started Silicon Graphics and Netscape, um, for those that recognise. There was John Warnock, who started Adobe, Alan Kay, who started object-oriented programming. So I suspect it was a pretty inspirational class. Some pretty smart people. And this idea of, um, you know, working on whatever excites them, I think that's stuck with Ed. Mm. So they trusted um, them to innovate and they gave them all kinds of freedom to, you know, solve problems how they, how they wanted to. Um, and it gave them a lot of energy. So, from his uh, arts arts background, or sorry, his interest in arts, he he thought that um, you know pictures really spoke to him, and so he he basically decided that he wanted to kind of cross pollinate the ideas of um, his computer science, what he was doing with that, and the interest he had in art. 
And so by the age of 28, he made his first short animated film. Um, sorry, the first short animated film, I should say, um, mm. which is like digital, digital film. Um, and it was basically um, a model of his left, left hand which he went through this crazy process of um, like pl- covering his hand in plaster and and then mm. creating a mold and then putting all these like was- triangular nodes and things on it to kind of turn it into a, what, you know, what it would represent as flat surfaces and then, you know, program that into a computer. Pretty revolutionary at the time. Hugely much. And so much so that, you know, that's, that's in the um, – it's in the various archives and registries of you know famous things that have that have happened. Mm. So pretty cool. By the age of twenty eight, um, very interesting. Um, and twenty nine, he was hired by Applicon, um, which is a company back then. But um, shortly after, um, George George Lucas actually approached him um, and to become vice president of Computer Graphics Group. Uh, that he was involved with. Now, obviously, George Lucas is the guy behind Lucas Films, Star Wars, etc. Um, so I imagine that was a pretty big thing. Um, yeah. He had a fair bit of money by then to throw around. Yes. And so um, 1986, um, at the age of 41, um, Steve Jobs uh, bought out Lucas's digital division and founded Pixar with with Catmull um, as the chief technology officer, um, and obviously Pixar is responsible for the likes of Toy Story and Finding Nemo and all those massive animated films that we we know of today. Um, shortly after two thousand and six, Disney acquired Pixar um, with Bob Iger as the CEO, and I actually note that Bob's um, I think he's released a book recently. Um, which we might have to have a look at as well, particularly after mm, getting some insight from this that one. Out. Yeah, and put Catmull and John Lasita, um, who and John was another guy that um, Ed had been working with at uh, Lucas, and he was basically the the creative brains. Uh, he's the story man. Yeah, the story man. Um, and I think he's had some recently controversial things going on, but we won't we won't delve into those. <laughs> Really, I have to Google that later. And um, so obviously um, off the back of that, films like Cars and, um, and and some other, you know, the other big blockbusters of the animated films, you know, become the most- Lots of hits. Yeah, most successful Lots films of, of all time, $22 billion um, in box office revenue, which is unbelievable. Um, and so, you know, go on through the journey of his his- company which hopefully we're going to describe a little bit about and then 2018 um Catmull just um has announced that or he announced that he was going to retire from from his position um and and then obviously that was kind of timed um actually he had re- he'd released the book a few years earlier um and so he'd kind of written the book and then I think I imagine that he was on his way, kind of handing over the reins uh, by that point in time. Mm. So, very exciting life, um, and we've obviously skipped a big portion of, you know, 
of his life, which was the creation of Pixar. But we've kind of glazed over it. Mm. But we'll get into that. So, yeah, and this book's really about that. It's about his journey building Pixar into that incredible film studio that produces hit after hit and kind of how they do it and his philosophy around nurturing creativity in teams and in organisations. And it's a very interesting read, so let's get into it. So I guess there are sort of a number of things that stuck out to us that were kind of new or interesting ideas that we um, we learnt from while reading this. Um, but something that was particularly strong, I think, was just what you see in, I suppose, a lot of good companies is that they figure out what they care about, how to achieve it, and then have the courage to follow it. And so for Pixar, the way it describes it was really around trusting the creative process and setting up an organisation that was led by that and put that first and put quality first. So he describes it as a filmmaker-led studio. Mm. So they're all practitioners. There's no really kind of hugely corporate people looking over the creatives, you know. They're all really from cut from the same cloth and and have been involved in that creative process yeah it's quite it's quite interesting um the whole focus was you know it wasn't how can we skimp another dollar here or how can we um you know cut this bit here um although that you know i'm sure that happens as the organization grew into a a massive beast but the real focus was always play uh, focused on the creative side of things yeah, story is king is a saying that they throw around in side of Pixar and, yeah, quality over time constraints as well. Like some examples, I guess, <laughs> I think Monsters, Inc. took five years to make. Uh, they've cut whole films and remade them from the bottom up, Toy Story 2, they did uh, that and they actually got rid of the directors and started again. That's that's pretty inspirational, mate. Or, or, <laughs> yeah. Or, or it would have been unbelievably tough at the time. But can you imagine, you know, after you've, having spent years developing a particular film and then just axing it completely? Incredibly difficult. <laughs> he says the right people and the right combination is more important than good ideas. Ideas come from people, not the other way around. mm so he also decided not to go into the director video market, which was at the time a huge source of revenue for Disney, incredibly popular, these sort of uh, VHS videos or I suppose whether it got to DVDs at that point, but that would sell, you know, animated um, movies direct to VHS that, you know, you could buy for your kids and watch at home but they felt that they weren't going to be able to produce the quality that they believed in and so completely ignored that market. So what, So and that means that their focus was where, right? Well, it was in the feature films mm. um, and making things like Toy Story and Finding Nemo and Monsters, Inc. and A Bug's Life and, and really, 
you know, creating a really new, fresh type of deep story and engaging. Like Ratatouille, one of their movies, is one of my favourite movies. It's so, I don't know, something about it. It's just so touching. It's it's ridiculous. And it's about a rat, you know. The hero's journey. Really, right? The hero's journey. Yeah, they, they make it kind of appeal to everyone and it's it's pretty amazing feat. Some of the stuff he talks about in this book is probably why. Yeah. So the um, you do find that quite a lot of their their narratives are centered around. Well, I guess most most films, but it's very you know that hero's journey, which is quite quite amazing. Um, Have you started reading the Hero with a Thousand Faces? No. Ah, well, I'm listening to it. And is it is it a listenable book? <laughs> no, I should have bought. I might even just buy it on the Kindle. <laughs> Pretty dense <laughs> because it's dense, yeah. But I learnt a lot already from it. I know it's one of Ray Dalio's favorite books. Yes, but it, it actually inspired Star Wars. Very interesting. And a lot of filmmakers have have read that book by Joseph Campbell, so. It's pretty cool. It's uh, no doubt one one that will be discussed, yeah, some stage in the future. Um, so, yeah, I guess like he really kind of round out the point is that you know there's a lot of companies that throw around values as a you know success, innovation, excellence, or whatever, and just throw these words around. Um, and the idea, I guess, is for these values to, I suppose, kind of represent in one word or a sentence a whole heap of ideas and and guiding principles and the way things are done within an organisation so that it can be clearly communicated. But there's no real point if they can't back it up. Um, so if the word's, you know, excellence and you're not doing the doing and following it and making really hard decisions that are based on that, then what's the point of even having it in the first place? Well, it sounds like it sounds easy, like- And even that's easy to say, right? Like, mm. And that's something he emphasises is that, hey, following these at times were really bloody difficult and we didn't always get it right. And, you know, I know from being involved in running a business that it is very hard to at all times make sure you're aligned with the things that you're saying that you care about even if that's your intention yes oh well, it's it's very much the the actions speak a lot louder than words and there's this this term that's getting thrown around a lot um or at least i've seen it a lot in the last i don't know year or so which is that virtue signaling idea um and this is obviously directed more at individuals, but, you know, preaching to have particular behaviours, but are you really acting in a way that suggests that you, you know, you, you not just say what you believe, but you act the way that you believe? Mm. Yeah. And, you know, if you're not acting that way, do you actually believe it? Chances are probably not. Yeah. And so, 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 what is, so just scale, and that just scales up, you know, obviously hmm. then to an organisation. And I think they've taken that on board in a, in a big, big way. Oh, they're very aligned. Um, 
What's the handle and suitcase that he talks about? Metaphor. Yeah, so this 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 basically ties into that idea, um, but I think it has broader um, connotations to um, you know ge- processes in general and um, taking on particular projects or ideas. So the suitcase represents all that has gone into the formation of the phrase. So the experience, the deep wisdom the truths that emerge from the struggle. And too often we grab the handle and without realizing it, walk off without the suitcase. What's more, we don't even think about what we've left behind. And, and it's up to the individual to remember that it is okay to use the handle just as long as you don't forget the suitcase. Yeah, it's, that's pretty clever. It's a nice representation of what he's talking about. Well, it's, he's talking just simply about like, you know, um, empty virtue signaling. Yeah, that's that's mm. exactly what it is. Um, and so it's uh, there's a all hat no cattle. I think is a is another mm. little phrase to represent it. Another point is that I think that's lost sometimes is that you need to actually have a quite a profitable business to be able to follow some of these values to the fullest extent is that it's not always just that you're misaligned or something like that it's that you need to you need to actually build in money to be able to spend on things like making toy story 2 for for, for a long time or scrapping it or making monsters inc for 5 years that ain't cheap right so the business model's got to allow for you to actually do these things so if you're going to make a really high quality product you need to make sure you're selling it for a lot too so that you can continue to invest in your values that create such a good product too. Yeah. There's a there's a commercial aspect behind it as well. I see I see that you need time. It takes they take time. Yeah. I, I see that as very much the in the space of that disconnect between um yeah, by by its nature, the format uh, lends itself to being you know, input is disconnected from, uh, you know, what potential output can be realised, you know. So by that you mean the one movie can be duplicated a bazillion times and sold infinitely. Yeah, correct. So if it strikes a, a terrible movie can take the same amount of time as a good movie but sell very different amounts of <laughs> volumes. Correct. Yeah. Volumes of, yeah. Can be completely hit or miss. Or you see it in this, you know, certainly in the startup space, people working on an idea for years, yeah. you know, developing code or some app or a platform and then it's nothing. But at the same time, that app could also be the next Facebook. Yeah. So let's get into his creative process and what he believes. I, I think this rule of thumb was interesting for me. Um, to kind of sum up partly his approach is there he says, when we impose any limits or procedures, we should ask ourselves how they will aid in enabling people to respond creatively. If the answer is that they won't, then the proposal are ill-suited to the task at hand. So he talks a lot about not worrying too much about efficiency um, and that creativity much like he was able to work on whatever he wanted 
um, at that uh, at early in his career when he was a kind of an academic. He's able to let sort of things evolve naturally and planned innovation <laughs> doesn't work. So he's not too worried about being super efficient all the time. He's willing to let things kind of happen and let creativity kind of blossom out of from the bottom up. Yeah, I, I saw that. I, yeah, so I see that as they still stick to their process, right? But when we when the process is creating boundaries or limits on the way in which something is done, that's when things are kind of pushed outside. So it's kind of like when the creativity doesn't have the space to do what it needs to do, that's when it's a problem. Space is the key word. Mm. It, it, it needs space to just happen, you know. It can't be done on a timeline necessarily all the time. You, you, uh, you meditate, don't you, Matt? I do. Do you find that when you're meditating or when you're lying in bed or obviously when you're in the shower, any of those times there's just ideas that strike you, just great ideas? It's interesting. Sometimes like you'll – I find that you kind of make connections in funny moments, yeah, between things that just kind of pop up. And it's a skill to kind of try and – that I'm working on to try and recognise those and recognise how I'm feeling when those things happen and then write them down. <laughs> That's the key. Because they can go quickly. They go, Well, they, they go as quick as they bloody arrive. And like obviously if I'm in a meditation, I'm not going to stop um, – doing the meditation um, or if mm. I'm in the shower, I haven't got a notepad and pen handy. Uh, although I, <laughs> although I have seen, I have seen in those, um, in those gimmick stores that you can buy shower, notepad and pen, waterproof. <laughs> I think we actually stayed in an Airbnb once um, where, where I think the host had one of those sitting in their shower mm. and had some notes and things screwed on it. It didn't look. <laughs> okay. It, it, it wasn't the most clear of notes. I see. You know, it's it's right. kind of like an in It'd be hard to write on something like that. Very, very strange. But, you know, if, if he captures the idea of the uh, century on that bit of paper, mate, who knows? That's right. Well, let's talk about ideas. Um, because a big thing that I took from this book was that, you know, all the he was very, very strong about how all the ideas – and the early versions of the stories that they created sucked and they were ugly and they were didn't work and didn't kind of fit together properly. And But there was kind of a faith within the company that you work on them iteratively and they become beautiful. Mm. Um, and that's something that doesn't isn't really modelled to us generally, I think. Uh, but it seems to be true throughout art yep. and just talent in general. Um, I just imagine someone, or writing, for example, like I imagine J.K. Rowling just sitting there, just writing out Harry Potter word by word, and not doing twelve edits and planning it beforehand, or being rejected from like going to go, yeah, being rejected from like thirty publishers or whatever it was. Yeah, you know, just yeah. You, you never hear about the you know, the grueling, the grueling struggle that happens. Um, or you don't hear about well, the failures, particularly for successful 
artists or successful people of any form. You rarely hear about the, you know, iterations after iterations after iterations of failures they've had along the way. But to me, it's the iterations within the work that's interesting at, in, in, this, in this book is that their whole process is surrounded around creating kind of a safe, trusting environment for people to share new ideas. And so there's no uncertainty. You know that you're allowed to do that and then they not work out. Uh, that, but you need to be really honest with each other and don't worry so much about calculatable returns all the time. There is a there is a part of that, but not as much in other organisations. They've got this system and process that let, lets people be creative, come up with new ideas. Then in a, in a supportive way, those ideas are made better through honest conversations and then going back and making it better, better, better and getting feedback and then going back and doing it again and again and again. So much so that the budgets on these movies blow out quite a bit because they're always having to reanimate everything. <laughs> yeah, I um, I certainly know from uh, my own experiences in even in consultancy, and I know from some friends who work particularly in the creative consultancy space, which is, um, you know, I was in management consultancy. They they're in a more creative space in the management consultancy. They, when they're going to do a innovation or, um, you know, creative storming session, they basically remove the backstop of time um, off the back of the, the meeting or the workshop. So, you know, they might say, we're going to start our meeting at 2 p.m., but you guys need to commit that you're not going to have to leave in one hour's time or you know, two hours time. We're here until we've generated what we need to generate today. We're providing mm. the space. And that's a pretty interesting concept. Mm. And it's, it's, it's certainly something that doesn't mesh too well into what we see as the corporate way of life. I think it needs to be modelled from the top too. You've got to see the people at the top make those mistakes. And I think that's something that they do at Pixar pretty well um, with John Lasseter and and everybody at this kind of high-end creative. Yeah, well, and the those guys are very much on the ground, you know. They're, they're in the mix. Yeah, they're in the trenches. Yeah, and I think that's, um, that's, that's super important and something that we get drummed into certainly our, what our career paths were originally um, in the engineering space, mate. Yeah, so it's definitely – strongly strongly encouraged to I think spend time I, I, on site when, when you say strongly encouraged I think you mean forced <laughs> forced mandatory is that you have to go and experience it on the ground and and that's um integral to your learning and and people won't respect you if you haven't been out there and and done it yourself uh, it's kind of part of the culture I think it's a very Australian thing actually I, I, but I suspect that's the case everywhere too you know, I, I would suspect that over in the States or over in the UK, if you've come out of graduated, you come out, the first thing you're doing is you're being on, on the site. I think um, some, of my, some of my colleagues um, from Ireland at least, they started out as – there's this idea of like starting out as surveying. They do a lot of surveying. 
Yeah, that happens in England too. Yeah. But I think that, that, you know, tall poppy syndrome is an Australian saying and, you know, people, there's a great quote from this book uh, to Brooke written by Peter Fitzsimons about the Australians fighting in alongside the English and others in uh, World War II in Tobruk and they held off the Germans and it was this kind of famous story. Now, there's probably a lot of propaganda in this book I felt <laughs> reading it, <laughs> but it was a really good, interesting read. And don't, 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 th- don't let that get in the way of a good story though, mate. That's right. So there's a story in it that I seem to have stuck with me where there's a bunch of Aussies digging trenches in the hot Egyptian sun um, and they're, you know, all there with their shirts off um, with shovels just middle of the day, sun beating down and this bunch of English uh, soldiers walks up including this captain and he's pristinely dressed, you know, with all the bells and whistles, you know, ironed everything. You know, fully decked out. I actually thought there was like a brigade of captains, you know. There's like a few of (laughs) them. Well, I think there was this one particular one who came up and said, you Australians, you know, they just kept digging as these English people walked past. And one of the captains goes, hey, you salute us, you know. Um, We are your superiors. You, You know, you must follow the chain of command. And one of the Aussie guys puts down his uh shovel gets out of the thing goes and grabs his shirt slowly puts it on and he's a ma- he's the major of the australian whatever uh brigade or whatever and he says you know what you salute me because i outrank you you know sorry i think you just put his shirt on and say have it you salute me and then probably take <laughs> it back off and get back on the shovel well that's what the story is is that then he said, you know, piss off and then he took his shirt off and kept digging. And that's kind of the story that is part of the Australian culture that we like to think that that kind of thing happens and everyone's in there together. But I think that that's part of the Pixar culture. Yeah. That they all chip in and they've all been part of story making in the past. So. Well, all the, all the, you know, when – when the leadership is on board like that, you know, they are the the people around them feel the buy in. You know? They feel the yeah. energy. They're committed to the energy. So it's wholly important. Absolutely. Just just before we uh move on, mate, I did want to touch on something in the in just how important iterations are. Um it was a, a little Twitter Twitter post I saw the other day and by Ryan Stevens. And he said that Picasso created more than 50,000 works of art. How many are considered masterpieces that we still admire today? You know, maybe a hundred. Less than 1% of his creations are still relevant or even known about today. So stop trying to be perfect. It's a numbers game. Start creating and be courageous enough to share. Hmm. That's pretty cool because that certainly is part of the journey I'm trying to go on at the moment is learn to share and learn to – I've started doing more writing and I've been pretty hard on myself kind of like this is no good. But then this one particular article I've been writing about how to get better at your work, I've 
done a few edits of and kept writing it and I'm trying to write on it 10 minutes a day and I've noticed the quality of it has obviously gotten a lot better um, as I've been editing and rewriting these certain passages and adding new things in. And again, why am I surprised about that? I kind of know, but I think you don't really know until you do it. Um, and you've just got to keep going and hopefully we can, this podcast is a bit like that. We're practicing, so yeah, we've just got to keep doing it. I think it's, um, you, if you, you know, say you've been doing some writing for this year, you know, pretty religiously, if you back then looking at say the writing that you're doing now, you wouldn't think that you were capable of doing that writing so you probably wouldn't start or you wouldn't bother or you wouldn't think that you had the creative nous to to be able to come up with something like that um i i actually look at i look at some things that i've even written in the past and i still think i'm like you know not to say that they're very good but i was like oh i can't believe i came up with that or you know where did that idea come from or that's that's interesting that's it's cool. almost like a self, there's a self doubt. And so because we can't get it right, maybe the first time around, we, we hesitate to start the journey and it's all about hitting the iterations. And certainly when back in my glory days on YouTube, <laughs> um, when I was making some commentaries and things, you know, episode one was so far different from what episode, you know, 50 was and beyond it just kind of develops and grows and evolves you know depending on what people enjoy depending on what feels right and depending on um, um, where you want to take it yeah makes sense and so I think that's I think that's the the critical thing here mate yeah we'll, we'll put up the link to your YouTube in the show notes, I, I think we'll save, we'll say, we'll, we'll spare everyone that. <laughs> First person that finds it wins a prize. Lucky, lucky shouting. <laughs> um, so, candor's pretty important to him too, isn't it? Well, I think we've, I think we've touched on that as well. You know, I think that's kind of been glistening its way through. Is you can't possibly do some of these things without candor. And the openness that goes with it. Well, that's how you get the iteration. I mean, he calls the, you know, they hold special meetings to be candid. And that's something that I think works. Uh, I know my brother was telling me on the ship he was recently on, he's in the Navy. I think I've talked about him before on the podcast. Uh, the recent ship he was on, his captain held a meeting every Tuesday where everyone would sit, all the officers would sit down and, Tell the tell each other what pissed each other off about things. It was just this one hour meeting where you could say whatever you wanted, and it kind of it wasn't that you couldn't say whatever you wanted outside of that. But he made the captain made space for a strong opinions, honesty, non emotional kind of. This is how we get better. Sort of if you you're not doing this well, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And it went always, you know. And that's hard in the military. I <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah so, particularly yeah. the hierarchical nature of it. I'm I'm genuinely surprised that that kind of actually went on. But I th yeah. but I think the apparently it worked excellently. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I think the key is those you know 
in, in the case of your brother and in the case of um, these meetings that they have um, at Pixar, it's not a complaining session. Yeah, it's not to complain. No. So complaints are just, you know, they're, they're just the same thing as not saying what you really mean because all that's behind them is some, you know, egotistical agenda. And so it's about being really open and genuinely critical in the pursuit of the overall mission. Constructive. Yeah, yeah it's constructive. So they call these meetings the Brains Trust and they have them that review all the movies um, as they're going along and everyone sits around and talks about what could be better about this or that particular scene and the directors of the movies bring in the different parts that they want to work on. And it's not, and it's not like it's not that innovative of a concept in terms of a governance because all that Brains Trust is is basically a steering group. Yeah, it's a, it's a project control group. But, but I think it's different because it digs in into, yeah, so I was, into the ground level. I was going to say, but what- Sorry, yeah, <laughs> I interrupted you but, again. But what they actually do and how they conduct the particular project control groups, if you will, you know, getting very clinical on it is different, I would suspect, from many project control groups that I've been in, for example. Um where quite often there's there's too many agendas and and people aren't leaving things at the door or people are trying to find an easier way out of something. Um, Is it because there's no clear objective as such? Like I imagine these, it's like make this scene better is the one objective of that meeting. But some of the governance stuff that I've been involved in is is kind of very high level, you know, You're kind of looking at the overall picture. Yeah, maybe, and maybe, maybe there's maybe there's too much, yeah, too much involved. Um, you're looking at too broad a brush of the entire thing, and so, which is quite interesting because what actually tends to happen in those type of meetings is because you're say presenting the entire status of the whole project at one point in time, um, people get caught up in, you know, in an issue. For example, you know you have an issue you had an issue for the last the last period of time and people become so consumed by that one issue but across the entire space of the project it's it's meaningless and it's going to result in meaningless things rather than focusing on how we can maybe improve or construct or do something better mm-hmm. and I, I i see that as people just wanting to exert some authority and people wanting to uh, push some sort of agenda quite often. Um, and I think that's maybe where it falls down. Whereas in the case of the Brains Trust, the whole idea is to leave all that, you know, at the door, which is a hard thing mm. to do. Yeah. But they're trying to create a safe space to do it. And the other interesting thing about this is that it wasn't just a once-off. So Ed and John took over Disney when Disney bought Pixar. They actually put – tried. Disney said, we want to replicate Pixar's, we'll keep you as a separate company. We want to replicate Pixar's culture within the Disney animation studio. And they went over there and basically used these same principles and fixed Disney and they've made lots of hits uh, from that point on because they've they've kind of u- used these ideas and 
this structure. It's really the thing that really strikes me about this book is it's super interesting how they're able to create a structure for creativity. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's why I think, you know, that as you said at the start, that motto, which is, you know, story is king, trust the process. Or maybe maybe it should be flipped around the other way. It should be trust the process, but story is king. You know? Mm. It's kind of, but yeah. You know, you know, they've created they've created this um process which is usually associated with being a limiting thing, but have allowed it to help with something that allows for something that requires space which is creativity yeah and that's that's just yeah very very impressive is there anything else you wanted to touch on about the book well i so this this brains trust idea um you know which is basically a steering group for the movies which is established at the start right and it's this opportunity for people to come forward and um you know talk about things in this in a non-mandatory way um you know it's not it's not a way to push the blame onto people um i saw it exactly the same as uh monday notes which we spoke about i think in an earlier episode might have been episode six with range um and this is where uh werner von braun uh he was at the Marshall uh, Space Flight Center and they used to have this thing with Monday Notes where they basically would, you know, the, all the engineers would submit to him, um, you know, some of the issues and problems that they were facing, you know, just the major, the major problems that they were having. And he would basically go through all these notes, you know, he's being the central point, mark them up and put a few different comments and things out and then distribute them out to the entire company. Mm. Right, or distribute them out to everyone that was able to see them. And they were able to unblock so many problems that they were having. What happened? It, problem shared. Yeah, problem, problem shared and, and you know, many minds coming together to solve problems in slightly different domains maybe, you know, a bit of domain mm. analogous thinking. So the subsequent... Um, you know, leader came in uh, to Warner Van Braun and basically turned that from a uh, a cum- communication tool into a hierarchical tool, and so it became a bit more of a blame game. Um, and whilst obviously the guy that you know was the successor, you know, was a brilliant engineer, he was renowned as being a you know shoot the messenger type guy. And so it became this form of compliance. It was mandatory and problem after problem after problem mounted, mounted, mounted and just was not being solved in the same way, fashion and changed the entire culture of um, the centre, which is quite interesting. I'm sure this isn't the sole issue, but, you know, that was a big, <laughs> a big, a big thing. Yeah. yeah that's really, it's a good, um, it's a good comparison because they are quite similar. So tell me what you're going to do differently after reading this book. <laughs> um, b- big one for me was loosening the management reins. Mm. Right? I think, I think, or certainly, certainly when I was getting s- 
um, started in the space. You want to you want to just know everything that's going on. You want to you micromanage. Um, and allowing people trusting in others to do good work is not just empowering for them, but it's empowering for you as well. And you know, if if there's a problem with with an outcome, you know, considering it, a, you know, a downfall on my half, not a downfall on their half. So I think that was that was part of it. Just just removing some of the micromanagement to allow some of the you know, freer flowing mm. things to happen, um, and that and that goes not just in the you know one on one management, but that would be you know from a meetings point of view or from a um, how do we run a particular project point of view? Let things kind of just loosen the shackles a little bit. Yeah. So that was that was one. And the next one, again, reinforced for me the importance of on-the-ground leadership. You know, you can only do so much from the bloody control center of the office. <laughs> you need to be in there, in the mix. Um, and I, I recall uh, when it, it might have been – Elon Musk and Tesla, they were having a major issue go back a few years ago. And he basically set up a desk in the middle of the manufacturing plant for himself and just sat there for the next several months or whatever it was, um, you know, and was able to work through and resolve things. So that was just another, you know, tick in the box for how important that on the ground leadership is and, and, and the humility that comes with it. Yeah, that's huge. That's really good. Not easy either. No. And what about you, mate? So for me, um, somewhat similar, but I really took away that about creativity being as a system, you know, create a structure for creativity, not only efficiency. So I think most businesses focus on efficiency (laughs) and it's a worthwhile thing, but I think that, there's a lack of balance between that and and risk management is something that's um, kind of a bit overdone and what they've and it stifles creativity. So I, I really want to build that into the business that I'm a part of. Um, and I had a couple of quotes that kind of uh, stuck with me to kind of r- remind me about uh, what to do. And Ed says. At Pixar, we start with the assumption that our employees are smart, creative people who want to contribute. Next, we also assume that our company is getting in the way of their creativity and try to fix it to remove these impediments. That is awesome, I reckon. It's, it's, it, that, sec- I was going to say, Mark, that, that is like, it's not we're pushing you in a particular direction. We're just getting the things out of your way, you know. Mm. We're removing the boundaries so that you can just keep running. Yeah, and he doesn't mean, oh, hang out and think all day. He's just getting that balance in a bit more of a – and the second quote kind of talks about that. He says, you must loosen the reins, not tighten them. They must accept risk and trust the people they work with and do everything to eliminate fear, they being the people running the business. So make sure the people aren't feeling – looking over their shoulder and let them – you know, cap the downside of the mistakes they can make. So make sure you've got risk management for the really big things. But 
Um, yeah, let people use their brains. Yeah, the I think the <laughs> makes them happy. The fear, right? That fear is something that comes from that hierarchical piece. Yeah, you know? and so. Eliminating that fear is done when people are, you know, more freely able to express, you know, what they think. Yeah, and as I'm thinking about it now, I think it's important to kind of define the things it's okay to make mistakes with and take risks on and those that aren't. Yeah. Safety, those sort of things. Well, there's <laughs> – You know what I there's, mean? There's, and then, you know, we've, we've been speaking about defence and defence is the obvious example there, right? That is a place that <laughs> – you know, unfortunately, the the strict process and the um, the dutiful hierarchy needs to be in place because of the risk and the consequences that happen as a result of those outcomes. Mm. Um, you, you, you cannot have people going into a particular war zone and deciding that they want to do something their own way or do something slightly different to what the routine is because not just... It won't just end up with themselves being killed, but potentially a whole raft of other people and maybe even yeah. losing a battle or something, you know? So there's an interesting book that we might do on this podcast that I've recently read called Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal. And he talks about decentralising the organisational structure of the um, allied troops in the war against ISIS. Mm. And that is a really interesting read about kind of the dichotomy between traditional uh, military top-down siloed leadership and what he created um, in Iraq to try and defeat a chaotic, unpredictable enemy. So that would be awesome as a segue from this. I wanted to share one more thing um, that from this book I've written something I put at the top of my to-do list every day um, and it says, design your day, design your week. Walk the shop floor, meet with the clients, meet with the staff, move forward with the strategy and keep pursuing your Blue Sky projects, which is our innovation platform at FSC. Keep learning new things and build the machine of the business. So I think that's kind of the takeaway for me from this book um, and I'm trying to do that as part of my week. All right. I think that's that's a wonderful way to to wrap up and summarise the whole book in. Is it one sentence? Did you push that into one sentence? There's a lot of commas. <laughs> <in it. No. laughs> so oh. we might put that out there. We'll put it out as uh, something on our Instagram or something like that. So. Yeah, I think that's an excellent idea, mate. That's, uh, that's a nice little way to finish. Thank you. See you, Cheers. Mate.